Chapter Fourteen of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen: Mutiny. They resumed the conversation where they had left off. It seems to me, said Bob, from all you say, that monocle man has been a mighty busy person. Of course you knew right along what he is. You didn't need any information from poor little me about him. He couldn't fool great big you, she affirmed admiringly. I can imagine what he is now, observed Bob meditatively. He was turning over in his mind what she had said about that substituted brooch. The someone Bob had imagined he had seen in the hall, after leaving Miss Dolly's room, might not have been the real thief after all. It might have been the monocle man on the lookout for the thief. And perhaps the monocle man had seen Bob. That was the reason he was coming for him. Bob could imagine dear old Dad's feelings if he, Bob, got sent to Sing Sing. What if, instead of rustling and rising to the occasion in that fine old honourable Japanese way, Bob should bring irretrievable disgrace on an eminently respectable family name? He could see himself in stripes now, with his head shaved and doing the lockstep. Perhaps even at that moment descriptions of him were being broadcast and if so it would look as if he were running away from the officers of the law which would be tantamount to a confession of guilt bob shivered the temperamental young thing did not share his apprehensions of course lord stanfield only thinks he has evidence enough to convict you she said confidently but you'll meet him at every point and turn the laugh on him oh will i said bob ironically and you'll make him feel so cheap of course you've got something up your sleeve wish i had he muttered something deep and mysterious she went on in that confident tone that's why you acted so queer towards some people you had a purpose it was a ruse wasn't it now she concluded triumphantly it was not gruffly fibber every time you fib you've got to she put out her lips this is getting monotonous grumbled bob on the contrary, breathed the temperamental young thing. I find it lovely. Maybe you'll learn how sometime. Don't want to, he snapped. Oh, yes, you do. But as I was saying, you got yourself put in that sanatorium to mislead everybody. It too was a ruse, a part of the game. It's all very clear, at least to me. He stared at her. And she called that clear? When did you leave Mrs. Ralston's? he demanded about three hours ago said i'd a headache and believed i'd go to my room but i didn't i just slipped down to the village and hired a taxi maybe we'd better keep our marriage a secret at first irrelevantly maybe we had answered bob and then he called out to the man in front stop a moment before miss dolly had time to expostulate the driver obeyed bob sprang out you aren't going to leave me are you said the temperamental little thing. If so, she made as if to get out, too. No, I'm not going to leave you just yet, answered Bob. Then to the driver. See here, your blamed machine is turned in the wrong direction. You know where you're going to take us? New York. No, back to Mrs. Ralston's. You take the first crossroad you come to and steer right for there. You're not to do any such thing, called out Miss Dolly. You're to go where I tell you. You're to do nothing of the sort, said Bob. You're to go where I tell you. The driver scratched his head. Which is it to be? asked Bob, 
This is the place to have an understanding. The lady hired me, he answered. Yes, and I won't pay you at all if you don't mind, said Miss Dolly in firm, musical accents. Guess that settles it, observed the driver. You mean, began Bob, eyeing him. It means I obey orders. She's my fare, not you. We just picked you up. And that's your last word? Ominously. Say, lady, the driver turned wearily, have I got to suppress this crazy man you got out of the bug-house? Maybe that would be a good plan, answered Miss Dolly, militancy now in her tone. That is, if he doesn't get in, just sweet and quiet-like. It'll be twenty dollars extra, said the man, rising. He was a big fellow, too. Make it thirty, returned Miss Dolly spiritedly. It was an issue and had to be met. There was an accent of, on to Parliament, in her voice. One can't show too much mercy to a slave when he revolts. One has to suppress him. One has to teach him who is mistress. A stern lesson, and the slave learns and knows his place. Now mind the lady and get back where you belong, said the driver roughly to Bob. Your tiles are loose and the lady knows what is good for a dingbat like you. Possibly he thought the display of a little authority would be quite sufficient to intimidate a recent patient. They usually became quite mild, he had heard, when the keepers talk right up to them, like that. The effect of his language and attitude upon Bob was not, however, quieting. Something seemed to explode in his brain, and he made one spring and got a football hold. Then he heaved and the big man shot over his shoulder as if propelled from a catapult. He came down in a ditch, where the breath seemed to be knocked out of him. Bob got on in front. As he started the machine, the man sat up and looked after him. He didn't try to get up, though. He just looked. No doubt he had had the surprise of his life. "'I'll leave the car in the village when I'm through with it,' Bob called back. "'A little walk won't hurt you.' The man didn't answer. "'Gee, but that's a powerful lunatic for a poor young lady to have on her hands,' he said to himself. An hour or so later, Bob drew up in front of Mrs. Ralston's house. He opened the door politely for Miss Dolly, and the temperamental young thing sprang out. The guests were still up, indulging in one of those late dances that begin at the stroke of twelve, and the big house showed lights everywhere. There were numerous other taxis and cars in front, and Bob's arrival attracted no particular attention. Miss Dolly gave him a look, militant, but still adoring. She let him see she had claws. "'Maybe I'll tell,' she said. "'Go ahead,' he answered. "'Aren't you afraid?' No, he hadn't done anything wrong. "'Aren't you even sorry?' she asked, lingering. "'For what?' "'Being so rough to that poor man.' "'I'm not. Good night.' "'Good night, darling.' She threw out that last word as a challenge. It had a tender but sibilant sound. It was a mixture of a caress and a scratch. It meant she hadn't given up her hold on him. He might have defeated her in one little contest, but she would weave new ways to entrap him. She might even manage to make him out a murderer. He had been so many things since embarking on that mercurial truth-telling career, and then she would give him the choice of the altar or the chair. He started the machine, and she watched him disappear, musingly. There was a steely light, too, in her eyes. He was a mutineer, and mutineers should, figuratively, be made to walk the plank. Should she put him in jail, and then come and weep penitently? At least it would be thrilling. Certainly anything was better than that cast-off feeling. She felt no better than cast-off clothes. 
this great big brute of a handsome man, instead of jumping at the chance to elope with one who had everything to offer such a one as he, had just turned around and brought her back home. Maybe he thought she wasn't worthy of him. Oh, wasn't she? Her small breast arose mutinously, while that cast-off sensation kept growing and growing. After rescuing him and saving him, instead of calling her his beautiful doll, or other pet names, and humming glad songs to her, how they would row, row, row on some beautiful river of love, or stroll, stroll, stroll through pathways of perfume and bliss. Instead of regaling her with these and other up-to-date expressions appropriate to the occasion, he had repudiated her, cast her off, deposited her here on the front steps, unceremoniously, carelessly, indifferently. Her cheeks burned at the affront. It was too humiliating. The little hands closed, the temperamental fingernails bit into the tender palms. At that moment the monocle man sauntered out of the house and on to the veranda, near where Miss Dolly was standing. She turned to him quickly, her temperament had about reached the Borgia pitch. Bob went on down to the village, and to the taxi-stand near the station where he had promised to leave the machine. The last train had just passed by, after depositing the last of late comers from the gay metropolis. Most of them looked fagged. A few were mildly corned. Bob regarded them absently, and then gave a violent start. "'Gee-gee!' Gee, he gasped. There she was, in truth, the beauteous Gee-gee, and the fair Git-up, too. Bob gazed in consternation from reddish hair to peroxide. The two carried grips and were dressed in their best, that is to say, each wore the last thing in hats and the final gasp in gowns. "'Guess none of those society dames will have a thing on us when it comes to rags,' Get-up murmured to Gee-Gee, as they crossed the platform with little teeny-weeny steps and headed toward a belated hack or two and Bob's machine. That young man yet sat on the driver's seat of the taxi. He was too paralyzed to move as he watched them approach. Where on earth were Gigi and Get-Up going? He feared to learn. He had an awful suspicion. Chauffeur! Gigi raised a begloved finger as she hailed Bob. The glove had seen better days, but Gigi didn't bother much about gloves. When she had attained the finality in hats, and the ne plus ultra in skirts, hosiery and stilts, you asked for shoes, she hadn't much time, or cash, left for gloves, which were always about the same old thing over and over again anyway. "'Chauffeur!' repeated Gigi. "'Meaning me?' inquired Bob in muffled tones. Why didn't she take a hack? He had drawn up his taxi toward the dark end of the platform. "'Yes, meaning you,' replied Gigi sharply. "'Can't say I see any other human spark-plug in this one-night burg.' W "'What can I do for you?' stammered Bob. He was glad it was so shadowy where he sat, and he devoutly hoped he would escape recognition. "'What can he do? Did you hear that?' Gigi appealed indignantly to get up. "'I don't suppose a great jink like you knows enough to get down and take a lady's bag? Or to open the door of the limousine?' "'Well, you see, this machine's engaged,' mumbled Bob. "'No, I don't mean that,' hastily. "'I mean I'm not the driver of this car. It doesn't belong to me, and that's the truth.' "'Where is the driver?' haughtily. "'Send for him at once.' Gigi did not like to be crossed. Gid-up was more good-natured. She only shifted her gum. 
"'I can't send for him,' said Bob, drawing his hat down farther over his face. "'He's down the road.' "'What's he doing there?' "'I don't know. Maybe he's walking. Maybe he's sitting in the ditch.' Gee Gee stared, but she could see only a big shadowy form. She couldn't make out Bob's features. "'The boobs got bees,' she confided to get up, and then more imperatively. "'Are you going to get off your perch and let us in?' "'Beg to be excused.' muttered Bob. Hack over there. Quick, before someone else gets it. That started them away. The teeny-weeny steps encompassed accelerando the distance between Bob and his old friend, the hackman who had laughed at what he supposed were Bob's eccentricities. The hackman got down and hoisted in the grips. Where to? he said. Bob listened expectantly. He feared what was coming. Mrs. Ralston's, answered Gee Gee haughtily. At the same time, get up threw away her gum. She would have to practice being without it. Bob drearily watched the hack roll away. He refused another offer of a fare, this time from a bibulous individual who had supped, not wisely, but too well, and nearly got into a fight, because the bibulous individual was persistent and discursive. Then Bob walked away. He didn't think where he was going. He only wanted to get away from that chauffeur job. What would come of these new developments, he wondered. The temperamental young thing was peeved, and the ponies, not equine, had come galloping into the scene at the critical moment. He tried to account for their presence. Undoubtedly it was a coup of Mrs. Dan's. When she learned that dear Dan was bringing counter-influence to bear upon her witnesses, she arranged to remove them. She brought them right into her own camp. How? Gee-Gee and Gid-Up did a really clever and fairly refined musical and dancing act together. Mrs. Ralston frequently called upon professional talent to help her out in the entertaining line. It is true, Gee-Gee and Gid-Up were hardly high enough up, or well enough known, to commend themselves ordinarily to the good hostess in search of the best and most expensive artists, but then Mrs. Dan may have brought influence to bear upon Mrs. Ralston and Mrs. Clarence may have seconded Mrs. Dan's efforts. They may have said Gee-Gee and Gid-Up were dashing and different, and would be at least a change. They may have exaggerated the talents of the pair, and pictured them as rising stars whom it would be a credit for Mrs. Ralston to discover. The hostess was extremely good-natured, and liked to oblige her friends, or to comply with their requests. Of course the young ladies would not appear on the scene as Gee-Gee and Gid-Up, in all probability. No doubt they would assume other and more appropriate cognomens, non-equine. The last show they had played in had just closed, so a little society engagement, with strong publicity possibilities on the side, could not be anything but appealing, especially to Gee-Gee with her practical tendencies. Of course they would have to make a brave effort to put on their society manners, but Gid-Up had once had a home, and Gee-Gee knew how people talked in the society novels. Trust Gee-Gee to adapt herself. Bob felt he could figure it all out. Their coming so late would seem to indicate they had been sent for in haste. Mrs. Dan, perhaps, had become alarmed and wasn't going to take any more chances with the Commodore, who was capable of sequestering her witnesses, of inveigling them on board one of his friend's yachts, for example, and then marooning them on a desert isle, or transporting them to one of those Café Chantants of Paris, Besides, with that after-midnight hug and grisly going on, Mrs. Dan knew it wouldn't much matter how late the pair arrived. 
By the time Bob had argued this out, he was a long way from the village. He had been walking mechanically toward the Ralston house, and now found himself on the verge of the grounds. After a moment's hesitation, he went in and walked up to the house. The dancing had at length ceased, and the big edifice was now almost dark. The inmates, or most of them, seemed to have retired. A few of the men might yet be lingering in the smoking-room or over billiards. For a minute or two Bob stood in silent meditation. Then his glance swept toward a certain trellis, and a sudden thought smote him. Wasn't he still Mrs. Ralston's guest? The period for which he had been invited hadn't expired, and he hadn't, as yet, been asked to vacate the premises. True, some people had forcibly, and in a most high-handed manner, removed him for a brief period, but they had not been acting for Mrs. Ralston or by her orders. He was, therefore, legitimately still a guest, and it was obviously his duty not to waive the responsibility. He might not want to come back, but he had to. That even tenor of his way condition demanded it. Besides, manhood revolted against retreat under fire. To run away, as he had told himself in the car with Miss Dolly, was a confession of guilt. He must face them once more, even Miss Gerald and the hammer-thrower. He could, in fancy, see himself handcuffed in her presence, but he couldn't help it. Better that than to be hunted in the byways and the hovels of New York. Oddly, too, the idea of a big comfortable bed appealed to him. He climbed up the trellis, and stood on the balcony upon which his room opened. Pushing up a window, he entered, and feeling around in the darkness, he came upon his grip where he had left it. He drew the curtains, turned on the lights, and undressed. He acted just as if nothing had happened. Then, donning his pajamas, he turned out the lights, drew back the curtains once more, and tumbled into the downy. End of chapter 14